0: welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. Why do we fight wars? Well, today we've got a lecture from Margaret Macmillan that might begin to answer that question. Margaret is the author of War, How Conflict Shaped Us. And she originally gave this talk on her book as part of our virtual lecture series. You can find out more about that at historyextra.com forward slash events.
2: I want to start with a picture which some of you will be familiar with. It's, it's 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 by Albert Dürer, the great German artist. And it is the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And among those horsemen who are, of course, supernatural creatures is war. And you can see below the feet of the horses those who suffer from the four horsemen, including war, the civilians, the innocent bystanders, the people who are trampled down by what happens. I'm talking tonight about war and why do we fight. And it's not a subject that is a happy subject, but it's a subject I think that is very important. It is something that we think about. It is something that we wonder about. It's something that we have many questions about. Svetlana Alexievich, the great Belarusian writer, wrote in her book, The Unwomanly Face of War. War remains, as it has always been, one of the chief human mysteries. And it is, I think, a mystery. It brings out both the best and the worst in human beings. It creates wonderful art, both art that is depicting the horrors of war, as this picture on the screen does, but also art that glorifies war. And it is something that has, in my view, deeply affected human history. My subject is war, why do we fight? Let me start with a simple definition of war. And war is not random violence. War is not the sort of violence you get when two people get into a fight and start throwing punches at each other. What war is, is something highly organized. War is organized groups, who will use violence or the threat of violence to achieve their ends. It is, in fact, one of the most organized of all human activities. When you think of the organization that it takes to find people who will fight, willing or unwilling, to train them so that they will be prepared to risk their lives and, and follow orders and often take risks, of, of which we wouldn't normally do in everyday life. When you think of the organization that it takes to equip those soldiers, to feed them, to put them in barracks, to move them around. You will understand what I mean when I say that war is highly organized human activity. And there is a long debate among historians and others about how much war has affected human organization. It's almost impossible, I think, to say which comes first. Did we get organized because we wanted to fight wars or did the threat of war and the need to organize ourselves force us to get more organized? My own view is it's, it's like the chicken and the egg, we probably will never know. But as far back as we know in history, as soon as we began to organize into groups, whether those were tribes or family groups or later on nations and empires, we began to develop a sort of governments that would make large scale wars possible. The more the governments developed and the more organized they became, then of course the better we became at fighting wars. As one eminent sociologist said, The state made war, and war made the state, and it's very difficult to see, I think, which comes first. What is clear is that war goes back very, very far in history. This is a battle in the 7th century BC of Assyrians fighting, and you can see the warriors there. This is something, a very common theme in art all around the world, depictions of war, depictions both of the uh, glorious side, if you want to call it that, of war, but also pictures of the horror of war. It's a relief from, from Iraq, now in the British Museum. And then I'd like to show you a slide that is much, much more recent, Done photograph taken in the 1950s. It's a photograph of soldiers, American soldiers, fighting in the Korean War. But if you look at them and you think of that previous slide, their posture, their determination looks very much the same. And so I think war has a very long history. In our world and, and in our histories, and it's true of pretty much every society. We write about war, we think about war, and I think we ought to. I've sometimes asked in, in lectures why do I why don't I talk about peace instead of war? And, and my answer is, of course, I would rather be thinking and working about pe- working on peace, but war has played such an enormous part in human history. It has quite literally at times changed the course of history. If you think what might have happened, for example, if the Ottomans outside Vienna had captured that city in the 17th century, it would be a different sort of center of Europe, I think. Vienna would have perhaps more mosques historically than it now does. And so war has changed, I think, the course of history, and it has often changed societies. It has also, of course, had hideous costs. This will give you an indication of how artists have reacted to the horrors of war. This is from the famous series that the Spanish artist Goya did of the disasters of war. And this was part of the civil war that went on in Spain when French soldiers occupied it. So here you see women, one of them carrying an infant on her back, attacking the French soldiers. Goya was not able to show these in his own lifetime because they were so disturbing and so graphic and so critical of war. He kept them and they were published after he died. Civilians in war are often its targets and its victims. They are brutalized sometimes as much as as those who actually fight. And again, this is something that is still with us. These are women walking through the ruins of Idlib in Syria. And it gives you a sense of what war can mean to civilians. And so I wanted to show both the Goya and this much more recent photograph To give you a sense that this is not something that just exists in the past, this is something that is still very much with us today. All around the world, there are wars going on, low-level wars often, wars that don't get terribly well reported sometimes, and those who so often suffer are the civilians. It's been estimated, I don't think we'll ever know, that some 50 million people around the world have become refugees in this century because of war. That leads me to some of the many questions about war. Is it something that is so deeply ingrained in, in us as a species that we never, never get away from it? Are we by nature warlike beings? And, and this is a long, long debate that goes back again very far into history. And certainly we know that people, when they're frightened, can lash out. And that may be something that evolution has given us. We have, a, we have an impulse to violence often when we're afraid or we have an impulse to violence when when, when we feel anger at something someone has done to us. But I would argue that is not the same as war. And I'll go back to my earlier point that war is the most organized of human activities. And, in fact, in war, violence is not random and it's not spontaneous and it's not something that happens. War is something that is ordered. There's also an argument being made at the moment by Steven Pinker and others that we are getting less likely to to, to use violence, that we're getting less likely to lash out, that we've become nicer and kinder societies. And Steven Pinker argues that if you look at the pattern over the last centuries, certainly societies in much of the world have become less used to using violence, less likely to do public executions, for example, as used to happen in the past, less likely to have violent prize fights, less likely to have bear baiting, that we have become kinder and gentler. This seems to me an interesting argument, and I think certainly we have seen a movement in a lot of societies away from violence and a distaste for violence, but again, that's not the same as war. And if we think of the wars that have gone on in the, in the 20th century and continue to go on in the 21st century, I don't think we can really say that we are moving away from war completely. So what is it that makes us fight? If we are prone to violence, that is still not the same as war. If Pinker and others are right that we're perhaps getting nicer as, as individual beings, why do we still have organized violence? And why have we had organized violence throughout so much of our history? And I would argue that it is partly the importance of the society into which you're born, of the cultural values of that society and the the norms, if you like, of that society. I'd like to show you my next slide, which is a picture of our closest cousins as human beings. The rather ferocious looking one is a chimpanzee, and the rather benign looking one on the left of your screen is a bonobo. And genetically, we are very close as humans to this pair here. And what is interesting about them and and primatologists have been studying both very much is that chimpanzees are indeed prone to violence and organized violence at that, that they will form bands who will patrol their area, who will attack other chimpanzees from other bands who wander in, who will actually plan attacks on other bands of chimpanzees which they feel are weaker and seize their young and seize their women and carry them off and, and often kill the males. Bonobos don't behave like that, although they are, in most respects, absolutely identical to chimpanzees. Bonobos live in a peaceful society. It's, interestingly enough, a matriarchal society. And so the female bonobos exert influence in the bonobo world, unlike the chimpanzees where it is the powerful males who exert influence. And when a stranger strays into bonobo territory, the bonobo will welcome that stranger. They do not seem afraid of others and they don't lash out violently. And one explanation is that the chimpanzees live in a part of Africa where there is a natural predator. They have the enemy of gorillas and that they have therefore developed ways of fighting and and holding off those they fear. Whereas bonobos have no obvious enemies. They, They live in a rather peaceable part and that they have therefore developed over the centuries a more peaceable culture. I think the cultural factor is enormously important in helping to understand why we have war and why different peoples fight. What also I think is important is that when you have something you want to defend, you want to fight, fight others off, but others may want to take it. It seems to be the case that we developed as a species organized war. Probably about 12,000 years ago, I and mean, there may be evidence earlier on, but certainly the evidence goes back quite a long way. Archaeologists have found mass graves of people whose skeletons, skeletons seem to bear the signs of, of violent death, early fortifications, some of them dating back 5,000 years BC, or early types of weapons, round balls, for example, which look as though they were made especially to be used as weapons. It is possible, but it's all speculation, but very interesting speculation, that when we stopped being hunter foragers, when we stopped wandering around as a species, picking up food where we needed or hunting the animals or the fish that we wanted to eat, that we settled down and became agriculturalists, it became harder for us to flee and we had more that we wanted to defend and, of course, more that others might want to take. And so, agricultural settlement. With its development of fixed settlements, larger social organizations, seems to have gone hand in hand with the development of war. And what you began to get fairly early on are warrior classes like those Assyrians I showed you some time ago. And in many societies throughout history, we have had the high a high value placed on military values. This is a Roman sarcophagus, and it shows, of course, um, a battle. It shows people fighting, and I wanted to illustrate the importance of cultural values in making war seem not just a normal, but a desirable thing. And in Rome, those who were military, those who were great military heroes were valued highly. And even those who weren't military would have themselves often buried, for example, in sarcophagus like this one, which showed scenes of of combat. And so a rich businessman, for example, would order a sarcophagus which did not show signs of business or trade or people making things, but showed battle because the military virtues in Roman society were seen as the most laudable and the most honorable. A lot of the depictions of war down through history have glorified it and have, this this one is fairly graphic, but the next slide I'm going to show you tends to brush out some of the more terrifying aspects of war. This is a slide of the famous picture that the French artist David did of Napoleon crossing the Alps. And this was a very early stage of Napoleon's career. He was going down into Italy to fight Austrian armies. He did not, in fact, cross the Alps in this style. He sat on a mule and he went rather slowly and he spent quite a bit of time sitting at the top of one of the purses, waiting for the weather to clear. But this is the image that Napoleon wanted to, wanted to project, and it became a very famous image indeed. This is the conqueror striding across the Alps on the way to a great victory. And although you can't see it, on the stones under the feet of the horse are the names of some of the earlier great soldiers who went across like Hannibal. But Napoleon is clearly not just their successor. He is clearly superior to them. And so, a lot of artists down through history have been used, either willingly or unwillingly, to make propaganda which shows the glorious side of war. Now, you will have noticed that so far, every picture I've shown you of warriors or or people like Napoleon, generals like Napoleon, have been men. And that leads me to one of the other very many interesting questions about war why is it that probably 99.9% Of all those who have ever fought down through history, have been up until the present day men. Is war something that men do better? Is it war that's something that men are prepared for biologically? And I think it goes back to the same sort of argument about are we programmed biologically to fight each other, or is it in fact cultural factors? Now, a lot of people would argue that women are naturally more peaceful. These are women protesting, and some of you will remember, and some of you may even have been there at Greenham Common. When the Americans were going to bring in missiles that were going to be used as part of the defenses against the Soviet Union. And it provoked an enormous protest, which went on for months, indeed for years. A lot of women camped there. And this was one particular day where the women lined up around the perimeter of Greenham Common as a protest, but also to prevent any of the missiles from coming in. And so there is one view that women are naturally more peaceful, naturally more inclined. To work for peace, and that they are perhaps biologically programmed to do so because they are, after all, those who give birth to children, they are the those who, who are the nurturers. This is this is an argument. But I think we have to look at the fact that women haven't always been for peace. Women have often been cheerleaders in the wars, women have often encouraged men to go off and fight. Think of the women who in Britain and other countries, my own country, Canada. During the first world War went round handing out white feathers to men of military age who were not in uniform. Of course, they didn't bother to ask whether these men had reasons for not being in uniform, they might have been contributing to the war effort in other ways, the white feather, a sign of cowardice, was handed out to these men, and you get women saying two young men are going out with, I, I found a wonderful letter from the Second World War of um, a young man had written to his fiancée and said, look, I'm really frightened of going off to war, which was a perfectly reasonable thing to say, and I, I sometimes feel really apprehensive. And she said, I never wrote to him again. I broke off the engagement. He was such a coward. And so women do not always work for peace. Women can sometimes promote war and encourage men to go and fight. And we have actually found Some interesting, I say we, but archaeologists and historians have found some very interesting evidence of women who have actually been fighters. It used to be thought that Amazons were a mythical creation, that the Greeks perhaps had created them to terrify themselves by thinking of of such unnatural beings who, who would actually fight. But more recently, tombs have been excavated around the Black Sea, for example, which have skeletons which can now be dated thanks to advances in dating ancient DNA. And the skeletons can be shown to be those of women, and they often bear the marks of violent deaths, which look like they've died in battle, and around them have been buried their weapons and their armor. And there have always been, of course, the individual women who've disguised themselves and gone off to fight in various wars. And in Africa, in the 18th and 19th centuries, there was a famous band of women in the very rich kingdom of Dahomey, on the west coast of africa who were known as the dahomey amazons they were the bodyguard of the king and very very effective indeed according to various french soldiers who tried to fight them and found them formidable my next slide shows you some of the more modern women who have fought in wars and this is a slide of soviet women soviet women pilots the germans called them the night witches and these women were fighter pilots they fought against the germans they suffered a particularly awful fate if the German invaders caught them. because the Germans, so did the Nazis, so disapproved of women fighting. And the women would often carry two bullets in their guns, one to try and shoot any German who was trying to attack them and one to shoot themselves if it looked like they couldn't avoid attack. In the Second World War, Soviet women fought in the front lines. They fought as pilots. They fought as artillery officers. They fought as guerrillas. And so I think the weight of evidence shows that women are perfectly capable of fighting. And today's day, of course, a lot of women are in armed forces and do fight. So why do groups of people get themselves together, go through the training, the rigors of, of preparing for war, and why do they actually do it? And I want now to look at some of the reasons why organized groups from clans like my own Macmillan clan up to nations or to empires, why do they actually fight? And I've broken down the reasons into three main Types and I'm sure you can probably all think of others, but these are the ones I can think of. First reason that I think is there simple greed, loot, taking something that someone else possesses that you would like. And this is a picture of some of the many looted art treasures, books, and other artifacts that the Nazis took as they conquered Europe. It gives you a sense of the sheer volume of what they took. And as you probably know, there were warehouses filled with loot which had been taken from all over Europe. A number of the top Nazi leaders like Hermann Goering would go through the things, pictures that had been taken from the Louvre or pictures that had been taken from the Vatican galleries in Rome and simply say, I'll have that one, I'll have that one, put it in my castle. And this was being guarded at the end of the war by American soldiers. And so a lot of what war is about is greed. It's for loot like this. It's for land. It's to take slaves. It's to to dominate trade. It's to build empires. That's one reason. A second main category of reasons. This shows the Japanese attacking Pearl Harbor, and you may wonder why I chose it to show fear. What it shows, I think, or the reason for the attack was that people will fight to protect what they have. They'll fight because they fear that another power might be about to attack them. And sometimes they will fight before they've actually been attacked, as was the case with the Japanese. The Japanese high command were afraid that as the United States grew stronger, and prepared for war uh, in, the 19, in 1939 and 1940, that it would be impossible for Japan to fight it. And so they decided on a preemptive strike at the big American naval base of Pearl Harbor. And I think they were motivated partly out of fear, fear that if they didn't fight at this moment, they would not be able to fight in the following year. And the final very large group of reasons for war that, that, I've, I've, that I at least um, see is ideas, And I think we know how much religion has affected war down through history. And think of the Thirty Years' War, which caused such misery in Europe in the 17th century. And one of the motivating factors, not the only one, but certainly one of the motivating factors of that war was religion, a struggle between Catholicism and Protestantism. But not just religion, ideologies. Think of the people who have fought and died for various forms of communism or for fascism, and of course nationalism which i see as a sort of ideology as well the idea that there's something called the nation which is eternal which lasts before the individuals who lasted long before the individuals who live in the nation presently were around and will outlast them if they contribute to the survival of that nation and this is a, a painting done of a battle which some of you will have heard of it was the battle of valmy in seventeen ninety-two, and it was right at the beginning of the French Revolution, and powers from around Europe, horrified by what was happening in France and by the spread of the revolution, invaded. And this was this was these the, the troops were, were were troops coming from, from Prussia and Austria, and they invaded to try and strangle the revolution. And the armies that came into France were very much the old-style eighteenth-century armies, highly disciplined, um, Men are often afraid of their officers who simply obeying orders and, and being told not to show any initiative. And they are fighting French revolutionary forces who are not disciplined, not orderly, as you can see here. They're rushing across the battlefield towards those very neatly drawn up troops on the other side. And they terrified the more traditional troops they were fighting against because they didn't seem to know when to stop and they didn't seem to mind risking their lives. And they sang revolutionary songs. It was not in fact a great victory. But what it does, I think, is show you something of the power of ideology in motivating people. And this has been, I think, one of the strongest factors. People will fight for reasons which will seem to us absurd. Um, but we still see it happening today. If I'd thought 10 years, 20 years ago that we'd still be seeing wars of religion, I would have said, no, impossible. But what we have seen in parts of the Middle East and what we've seen in Afghanistan and what we're seeing in parts of Africa is wars that are fueled, at least in part, by religion. And the wars of ideology are sometimes the worst ones because what they do is portray or or conceive of the other side as, as being pure evil, standing in the way of a vision. And so if you believe that you're trying to establish a paradise here on earth, those who oppose you are standing in the way of what is a wonderful project. And so removing them is actually not a bad thing. To remove those who stand in your way, as of course the um, Jacobins did in the French Revolution, is actually to bring the desired effect that much closer. And so the atrocities and cruelties in the wars of ideology are often very great indeed, because one side will show no mercy to the other side, including, of course, the civilians. Now, wars are fought for various reasons, and they're fought, of course, in various ways. And how they're fought depends partly on the nature of society, it depends partly on how organized the society is, and of course, it also depends on the technology available. And there've been a number of great technological breakthroughs in wars in in the course of human history. One of the great changes, for example, that happened in the the millennia before the the, the millennia BC, was the introduction of the horse into parts of, of Europe and into parts of the Middle East. And what the horse made possible was much faster war, whether it was the horses were pulling chariots, which could contain archers or spearmen, or whether the archers themselves or the, the men with the spears were sitting on the horses themselves. And it meant that ground troops were often overwhelmed by the speed and the movement of the horses. And of course, in time, they learned to deal with it. And they learned ways of fighting back. Another great advance in the technology of war was the development of steel. Iron Bronze were not, neither of them as strong as steel, neither, neither of them lasted as well. And so steel made it possible to use the same weapon over and over again. And the bow, the simple bow and, and the arrow, as it became more sophisticated and capable of firing further, made a difference to war. In the modern era, era, the great change in war came with the invention of gunpowder. And of course, there are other changes, but gunpowder really was a revolution in war. And so I'm going to show you a slide of, of what it meant. This is an early picture of a cannon being used to knock down a castle wall. Now, if you ever go to a castle built in the Middle Ages, you'll notice that the walls are very tall and graceful. And they provided, of course, very good protection against soldiers on foot who were trying to come and and breach those walls. Once the cannon came, they could begin to Break through those walls with the force of their cannonballs, and building castles became very much more a more matter of making much squatter and lower castles with much thicker walls. The impact of the cannon on warfare, particularly once it began to be used as more than a siege engine, once they began to be brought onto the battlefields, was going to make a very significant difference, as was what the next slide shows you, and that is the introduction of a foot soldier. And this is a very, very early gun, um, not Particularly reliable, um, not particularly accurate. You know, they often exploded in the hands of those who were using them. But it's the beginning of a new age where the gun in the hands of the soldier becomes a lethal weapon. And of course, by the 19th century, we're getting uh, guns that can fire much further, guns with rifling in their barrels, which are much more accurate. And then, of course, by the time of, of the First World War, the machine gun, which can file, fire literally hundreds of bullets at a moment. So war is always changing, not I think in its essence, but it's always changing in the means that it uses and the types of organization that it uses. And one of the great changes that took place came in the 19th century. And a number of people put the start of modern war, the sorts of wars that we now probably know most about in the 20th century, in the 19th century. One of the key factors was the Industrial Revolution. Before the Industrial Revolution, it took a long time To make a gun, it took a long time to build a ship, it took a long time to move soldiers around, it was very difficult to feed and support and equip those soldiers over any length of time or or over any distance. What the Industrial Revolution did was make possible the production of enormous numbers of weapons, but not just weapons, enormous numbers of boots, enormous numbers of uniforms. It made Possibly the introduction of weapons that could be easily repaired because all their parts were standardized and they were all therefore replaceable. And so whereas it would take um, a gunsmith months to make a gun, now it's possible for a factory to turn them out day by day in vast numbers. And so the industrial revolution made possible mass production. It made possible the mobilization of resources to fight war. And what also added to that were new forms of communications. The new forms of communication, the steam engine. Absolutely crucial to the development of modern war because it made it possible, once you had laid the tracks in the right direction, to move huge numbers of soldiers. The Germans moved three million soldiers in the first days of the First World War. And that was, would have been unthinkable a century before where soldiers had to march or you had to, and you had to supply them with, with horse-drawn carts. And so the steam engine, the steamship, boats on canals, all this made a huge difference to modern war, as did things like the telegraph for communications. What also happened in this period was really what I was showing you earlier in that picture of the, the Battle of Baumi, and that was the spread of nationalism, partly, I think, because of growing urbanization and literacy, and more and more people began to identify themselves as part of the nation. They felt a responsibility to it, and increasingly they shared in its government. One of the key things the French Revolution did was introduce the idea that people were not subjects of a ruler. They were citizens of a country. And once you're a citizen, you take an interest in what the government's up to and what sort of government it is, but you also have an obligation to defend it. And so we get, in the 19th century, both the means to make war on a larger scale and the motivation for lots of people to want to fight in those wars. And so we saw by the time of the First World War and there were warnings before mass industrial war, which the next picture I'm going to show you, the next slide I'm going to show you is a painting. It's in the War Museum in Vienna. And I think it gives you a terrifying sense. I mean, these men are faceless. They're cogs in a a giant machine. They're sent out across a field, probably to their destruction. And I think you get in this painting some sense of the impersonality of this mass sort of war. I mean, we know it wasn't impersonal. We know there were lots of people and individuals fighting there, but you get these mass armies who behave and are treated as if they are part of a giant industrial machine. What has happened both during the First World War and since, of course, is not only was more, more in, has war become more industrial and more large scale, but also the innovations in war in the means of destruction. Have speeded up, so I'm going to show you just to give you a sense of how much this, the, the 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 war material has 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 uh, leapt from one type of destruction to another. Let, let me show you the next slide, which is the atomic bomb. It came about; it was produced as a result of the Second World War, and the innovations in both the First and Second World Wars, and of course since, have been absolutely enormous, and and It is probably fair to say that the speed of change has been much greater as the 20th century has turned into the 21st century. Often now, weapons that are planned are almost obsolete by the time they come off the actual production line. What war does is speed up change, it speeds up innovation. It was known in theory that the atom could be split, but it took the Second World War and it took an immense investment by the British and by the Americans in particular to do it. Now, sometimes, of course, we know that war, as an unintended consequence, will also produce more beneficial results. Even this terrifying picture of the atomic bomb did lead to nuclear power, which you could argue has been beneficial for humanity, although I know it's a controversial subject. But war has also speeded up improvements in medicine, improvements in the treatment of different peoples in society. We wouldn't choose to do it that way. But one of the great paradoxes, among the many other paradoxes of wars, is is that this happens. Well, this has been a very brief look through some of the things that make war what it is and and why I find it an interesting subject. Where do we go from here? What is the future of war? Well, that's the question. And I want to show you a picture of the second picture. This is a drone. Now, we tend to think of drones as small things some of them are very small, some of them are the size of a bumblebee. But this is a drone, a pilotless aircraft, quite big, capable of flying distances, and when armed, capable of wreaking destruction on targets often very far away. They're being used probably at the moment in the conflicts, the, the, the flare up between Azerbaijan and Armenia, and this is one of the futures of war. The human being is removed, this will sense its own enemy, it will follow its own directions. and there is fear, I think, among some who think about the future of war that there may well be a point at which humans can't actually control these sorts of machines. I think that's a long way off, but clearly war is moving into a new and, and increasingly high-tech stage. It's also moving into space, and of course it's also moving into the cyber world. but I think we're also going to continue to see war, which will look more familiar to us. These are American soldiers in Afghanistan. And in some ways, they look like the soldiers I showed you earlier on who are fighting in Korea, or those Assyrian soldiers who were fighting in the 7th century BC. There are still wars that will require soldiers to be on the ground. And there will be wars, Afghanistan, other wars, which will be fought with not particularly high-tech weapons, although those may be present, but will be fought with the old standard infantry gun, often even fought with things like machetes. A lot of the violence in Rwanda was done with machetes and hoes. And so I think we're going to see both very high-tech war at one level and then a continuation of of a war that perhaps is more familiar and which will continue to cause great misery, both to those who fight and to the civilians whose buildings and whose lives and whose families will be destroyed. We hope that there won't be other major wars in the world, but we should know that preparations and plans still continue. The United States continues to spend something like eight times more than all the other next eight powerful countries in the world. And China, among other nations, has been upping its military expenditure significantly in the past years. And we still have, I think, A certain admiration in a lot of societies for the military and for military values. And so, the cultural attraction of war and the cultural um, pressure towards war, I think, is is still with us in some places. Let me show you my, my last slide. This is a massive military parade in Beijing. And it's not, I'm not singling out the Chinese because a number of countries do this. After all, President Trump in the United States had his massive military parade in Washington and the French have massive military parades and the Russians have massive military parades. And so I think, and I I don't want to end on too pessimistic a note, but a bit, that war is not just a part of history yet. It's going to be with us for a bit. And that's the reason why I think we need to understand it and look at it and get some idea of how we perhaps can stop it. Thank you very much.
0: That was Margaret McMillan. Her book, War, How Conflict Shaped Us, is on sale now, published in the UK by Profile. You can also find out more about our virtual lecture series, including upcoming lectures in which you can put your own questions to the experts at historyextra.com forward slash events. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. Join us tomorrow for an episode on everything you wanted to know about the Black Death.